I'm Mark Hennick. This is So-Called Normal. Hey folks, welcome to So-Called Normal. I'm Mark Hennick. Today we have a special guest on the show that you may or may not have ever heard of, but he's been a, a pretty important figure in my own life for a very long time. Uh, Dr. Michael Higgins is the uh, writer. He's a Canadian academic. He's well known uh, for writing and speaking on issues of the Catholic Church. Uh, and he's also the vice president for mission and Catholic identity at Sacred Heart University in Fairfield, Connecticut. Uh, I met Michael for the first time when he became the president of my undergraduate university, St. Thomas University, uh, in Fredericton, New Brunswick. Uh, we hit it off intellectually and, and personally and uh, have been in touch really ever since uh, as we've been following each other's career. We get into this episode in, in pretty good detail, I think, about some important uh, figures, uh, Henry Nouwen, uh, if you're familiar with his work, the the writer, the spiritual writer. Uh, we, we talked about Thomas Merton because Michael Higgins has uh, written extensively on Thomas Merton. He's one of his official biographers. Thomas Merton, Pilgrim in Process, was one of his earliest books, actually, uh, as well as uh, Heretic Blood, an autobiography of, of Thomas Merton. So we, we get into... Uh, uh, the philosophies and the theology of some pretty important people in this episode. It might seem like a bit of a departure to get into religion, uh, but these, these have been some of the key figures in my own thinking uh, and my own development uh, in terms of my speaking and writing about mental health. So uh, that's a little bit of background about why why we're talking about religion in here, because as you'll, as you'll hear in the episode, it's a, a pretty important part of this whole conversation. So here's my so-called normal chat with Dr. Michael Higgins. I'm Michael Higgins. I'm the Distinguished Professor of Catholic Thought at Sacred Heart University in Fairfield, Connecticut. How many books? I was just looking up, and it's been a couple of years since we've actually seen each other. We've known each other for quite a long time yes. now, at least 10 well, years now. That- Maybe a dozen years at least. Yeah, at, at least. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I, I didn't realize that we hadn't seen each other now in probably two or three years. And it looks like you've written a, a bunch more books even since then. It's yeah. just you're always writing. Well, I think that um, that's one of the advantages, Mark, of the position they gave me. Mm. The position is a basically research mm-hmm. uh, position. I do what I want. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's lovely. So what is what is a distinguished professor in Catholic thought? What, what well, I, I just write books. And think about Catholicism. Uh, or any kind of thought. <laughs> or any kind of thought. Think about thinking. <laughs> they wouldn't be happy if I started doing having only Islamic thoughts. Right. Or right. <laughs> Anglican at thoughts. A Catholic or something. In, yeah, at yeah. a Catholic So every now and then I have to zero in on the Catholic side, right. which I do because so many of the figures I deal, I deal with are uh, Catholic right. figures. Now, I, I think I heard you say uh, once many years ago that you're not a particularly religious man, which surprised me. No, no, me. I am. I, I'm quite an intensely religious person. I'm not mm. pious. Oh. Okay. Yeah. What's the difference between Well, I think a pious and... person is someone who is uh, inclined to be modestly devotional, conformist with regard to uh, the church's laws, t- tend to be deferential to ecclesial authority. I'm not any of those things. Right. But I am certainly a, a practicing Roman Catholic situated right. within the church. Right. Um, now, you wrote a book um, – uh, a, a few years ago, suffer the children unto me, unto yeah. me, yeah, about the the sexual abuse scandal in the Catholic Church. Especially given how you've been talking about Catholicism, about the Church, uh, been writing about figures in the Church for a very long time. How was that received uh, within one, those one circles? Won an award in the United States in ethics. 
Um, in Canada, it had a slightly complicated history, which um, is fraught with ecclesial politics, or I should say ecclesiastical politics, in the sense that uh, one of the media figures, whose name I won't mention, who was supposed to have a panel discussion with my co-author, who was a uh, since deceased um, a senior CBC producer and a lawyer mm-hmm. from um, Cape Breton, actually, mm-hmm. Peter Kavanaugh. We had written the book together. And we were supposed to have this um, debate around the subject matter. Mm-hmm. And um, this particular individual who had arranged the debate and whatnot became quite alarmed that it would be disturbing to the ears of some Canadian bishops, and so he attempted to have the book suppressed, really? which is outrageous. Mm. And um, the uh, but it, it's a, in the American edition, it did uh, quite well. Mm-hmm. And as I say, it, it was an e-book as well. But it it received a, um, first prize in ethics mm-hmm. category at some national conference. Um, the book was an important one to write, Mark, and it was a difficult one because it's a dark place to be. Right. Sure. Now, I had written about the clerical sex abuse cases for the Literary Review of Canada. I had written about it for the Tablet of London. I had written about it before. Mm-hmm. But this was a sustained examination of the phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And uh, enlisting the assistance of uh, Peter Kavanaugh, as a, who was, as I say, a lawyer and uh, a broadcaster, he brought his forensic intelligence and his familiarity with the media right. to bear um, on the book and its marketing mm-hmm. and the discussions that it could generate. Mm-hmm. So uh, it received very good reviews on the whole in both the um, religious press and in the secular press. And but, but how do you not... I guess in terms of the content of the book and digging into those kinds of stories about sexual abuse in the mm-hmm. church and, and uh, abuse of power um, and position, how do you not lose faith when you're reading about these kinds of abuses within the church? I mean, people have died by suicide. They've had lifelong mental illnesses and from the trauma mm-hmm. uh, of that kind of, uh, of uh, perversion uh, of power. Well, my faith isn't in the institution, Mark. It's in the carpenter's son. Mm. You know, that's where one's faith is. Mm. Uh, if you have faith in institutions, you wouldn't be a Democrat, would you? <laughs> I mean, would you be a member of any Canadian political party? Would you be an advocate for any specific institution if you believed that, one, it was uh, indefectible, that its representatives were perfect, mm. and in the Catholic Church in particular, where the emphasis in, is on a kind of sacral identity mm-hmm. and even claims for infallibility are sometimes exaggerated, it does seem to me that you have to root your faith in the person of Jesus and the institution is secondary or tertiary. Mm. If it's primary, if your faith is in the institution and in the leaders of the church, Good luck to you. Well, and you've written and spoken uh, quite eloquently, always eloquently, uh, about the crisis, I think, facing the Catholic Church. Uh, Absolutely. And I think it's one of the reasons behind the new book that Kevin Burns, who's uh, also a former producer with the CBC and myself, have written called Impressively Free. Mm -hmm. And this book uh, um, is about creating or proposing a model for the presbyterate or for the Catholic priesthood, very different from the model that we have now. And what we do is we take the life and the ministry of Henry Nouwen, mm-hmm. um, uh, an extraordinary figure by any estimation. He was a psychologist, he was a priest, a spiritual writer, taught at Harvard and Yale, 
and then gave it all up and spent the last 10 of years of his life working in a large home mm-hmm. here in Toronto right, mm-hmm. before his death. So we, we make the case that the priesthood and the model of priesthood that we have now in the Roman Catholic Church is no longer sufficient mm. to meet the needs of, of uh, contemporary Christians, number one. Number two, it's in, it's in default mode or even in disgrace mode. Um, everybody argues, including all three popes, John Paul II, Benedict XVI, and most especially Francis, that we have to get rid of clericalism. Mm. There isn't anyone in or outside the church that doesn't blame clericalism for this. But in the end, what exactly is that and how do we deal with that toxin Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. if it is in fact a toxin and then begin the process of providing an alternate way both to educate priests and to make them available in their ministry to the world at large. The current way we do this is proving utterly inadequate. There's, it can't be changed. Mm-hmm. It has to be radically reformed. We do, mm-hmm. we do too much tinkering and renewal and very little reform. And one of the strengths of Pope Francis, I think, Mark, is that he's a reforming pope. Mm-hmm. He's calling the church to reform, hence the tremendous level of resistance to him right. because he's not asking for minor change. He's asking for radical change, your approach to the gospel, your approach to the poor, how you exercise leadership, mm-hmm. how you live a life of spiritual integrity. These are not trifling questions. They're deep questions, and they are, for many people, disturbing. Francis doesn't pull back on that. One of the areas in which I think we need to move forward is uh, cleansing the priesthood, not of what Pope, Fran- uh, Pope Benedict called the filth in the church. There is always that problem. But the larger problem is create, creating and perpetuating the culture of clericalism that we have right. in the church. Now, is that through the essentially the recruiting and the admissions process of who gets to or who's attracted to becoming a priest, who gets into the seminary, how they're formed? Well, yes, all of that. And I would say, um, and we do make the case in the, in this book, that one of the ways forward is the abolition or the demolition of the seminary. Mm. The seminary system came into existence as a consequence of the Counter-Reformation. So it's really a early 17th century um, creation and made a lot of sense Mm. um, because of rampant uh, clerical literacy, um, concubinage, clerical concubinage, uh, the rise of the reformers, uh, all kinds of things made the consolidation, if you like, Mm. of uh, priestly training an imperative and so developed the seminary. And the seminary served that function for a few centuries, mm. but we're now in the 21st century, and, and right. it hasn't functioned well for some time. How did people become priests prior to that? Uh, before the— Yeah, uh, if uh, they didn't go to seminary, how did they become a priest? Well, there were various ways. They would study at the university. Um, many universities were for clerics or clerks only, right? Mm. I mean, that's where the clergy went. It's right. n- Our uh, understanding of the, of the university that we have now is a much later mm. uh, understanding of the university's opening up outside the realm of the mm-hmm. clerics. Mm-hmm. So very, very much the university was the clerical realm. Bishops could call individual men to uh, ordination. One of the reasons why there was significant illiteracy amongst many is that the quality wasn't very high and the the training was rather mm-hmm. uh, minimum. Mm-hmm. But that would vary. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the time that the mendicant friars came along in the 13th century, with uh, St. Francis and St. Dominic, you have the emergence of these mendicant orders, and many of them concentrated on university life, right? Mm-hmm. And so they became academics, Thomas mm-hmm. Aquinas being perhaps the most outstanding example. And so if you were drawn to that kind of life, certainly the exercise of 
some kind of rigor for admission was already built in. Mm. It's the diocesan clergy, the regular clergy, the right. ones who are not mendicants or no, and who are interacting on Jesuits, yes, yeah, interacting with the everyday person in the pews, yes, right? Trying yeah. to inspire whatever it is, hope, uh, healing uh, of some kind. People seek out religion for whatever we, yeah, reasons. whatever we went by pews in the fifteenth century, right? Well, true, but right, but the churches. No, you're the, right. This yeah. is how people know the church now, and and I guess in that sense. Um, is is religion still relevant in people's lives if it does seem to have this kind of reputation and uh, if it seems to be um, very often a force that's destructive uh, in people's lives? Is it still relevant? Well, uh, yes, I think so. I mean, uh, you you're, would be aware, of course, of the general cliche now that people are spiritual but not religious. Right. And, Where do and, you stand on that? Well, I well, like most cliches, it's utterly inadequate, yeah. um, but at the same time speaks the truth, right? Mm-hmm. And the dissatisfaction with religious institutions as the primary, if not exclusive, way of mediating religious truth has outraged uh, a lot of people, mm-hmm. or they've found themselves distant from it, or it doesn't touch them in any kind of immediate way. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, the human yearning for mm-hmm. transcendence, for interiority, mm-hmm. for communion, that doesn't evaporate. In fact, uh, George Steiner, way back in the 1970s, in a brilliant series of lectures, the Massey Lectures of 1974, called Nostalgia for the Absolute, tracks that experience of what happens when you evacuate or you empty out a particular system of belief, whether it's Judaism from the 19th century, replacing it with um, the messianism of Marx or Freud, or whether it's Catholicism in in, uh, Quebec, and then you replace it with a, a particularly aggressive form of national secularism. Mm-hmm. national secularism, that it, there's there's always going to be the vacuum, and the vacuum will be filled by surrogate or substitute theologies. Mm-hmm. So the question is, isn't how do we get rid of something? The question is, how do we reform it? How do right. we strengthen it? Right. How we, do we address its weaknesses? It, it almost sounds as though religion arises out of necessity, out of an individual or personal necessity uh, to have a savior, uh, maybe, or or or, um, or a coherent uh, system of values. A right? coherent system of values, yeah. yeah. So, so in that sense, is the church, the Catholic Church that we have today, a result of uh, you know some sort of necessity? It, 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 did we create this, or was it imposed on people? Well, I think the, the church, the ecclesia, of course, um, always has a, a deeply cultural and historical component to it. Mm-hmm. So it adapts to a time, to its culture and to its time, mm-hmm. and it also shapes it, right? So mm-hmm. that the the church of the uh, golden period of the Middle Ages is very different uh, from the church of the of the uh, reform in the 16th century, very different from the church of the 19th century, mm-hmm. and very different from the church that we have now. In fact, the argument can be made that the church that people are in many respects of rebelling against is a 19th century Catholic model. Mm. And I think that that's true. I mean, Well, and after Vatican II, you know, uh, I can't remember the exact wording, but uh, flinging open the windows. Yes, uh, adjournamentum. Yeah, yeah. Updating. You're going to see then what's inside, <laughs> though. Well, you do. You do. And and um, reformers and people in the know have always known what's inside. It's, mm. it's, it's how you address it. And in an age of instantaneity, in an age when any kind of um, uh, ex, uh, 
instance of clerical cupidity or venality or malfeasance becomes public news, mm. whereas in the old days it would have been protected right. or it would have been censored or it would have been controlled through certain kinds of cultural agreements in the larger oversight of what gets right. headlines. Well, there's right? a whole lot that's of popes. That's all changed. Uh, there's now. a whole lot of popes that have had children uh, throughout well, history. Well, we've known that for a long time. Right. And in fact, the whole industry, um, film industry on the Borgias and the Medici mm. and everything Jeremy else. Jeremy Irons is thing. wonderful. Well, I, I don't think the church has ever actually denied any right. of this well, because right. the historical record is clear. The problem is, and this speaks to your earlier point about uh, piety, sometimes people, and maybe one should distinguish between pietism and piety, mm. um, people who are uh, pietistic um, tend, however, not to look at the underside, tend right. not to look at the complete picture, or prefer not to hear it, or right. consider it, to use uh, President Trump's phrase, phrase, fake news. Right, right. So how can the church then maintain moral authority, especially when one of the tools of bringing people into line seems to be shame and guilt? <laughs> I don't know if, if that's everybody's experience of Catholicism, but I think it, it is that of many. How can it maintain moral authority if it itself is morally compromised? Well, it, it speaks to two questions I think you're asking there that are important ones. And first of all is what do we mean by the church itself, right? Mm. I mean, I think if you if you assume that the church speaks with this univocal, unalterable, and ever-perfect authority, then you're going to have difficulties reconciling mm. how you live your life with an imperfect church. Mm. So it, it a lot of this depends on your perception of the structure. I want to sure. just move it outside the church for a second here. I presume that you're a citizen of the country and you to take tech democracy seriously. In the endless number of unleashed scandals we have about uh, the current political makeup in this country, which is a shadow of the one in the United States, mm. do you abandon your belief in democracy? Do you mm. give up on um, liberty? Do you say all, all freedom is a charade because there are mm. corrupt figures? Or do you say we need to reform the structures, right. Right? right? Walking away from structures is a form of cowardice, I think, because it invites not only collapse but chaos. But you're simply saying, I don't want anything, anything to do with this anymore because it doesn't correspond with my image of what it right, should be, right? Right, right? You hold the church to account, just like you hold yourself to account. If you keep talking about the church did this, the church did that, yeah. and not realize that as a member of the church, you're complicit in this. In the same way, as a Canadian Caucasian, we are complicit in some indirect way with the suppression of indigenous culture. Right. We, If we don't accept collective responsibility for the reform of our structures, the alternative is the continued atomization of society, right. which is what we have in so many And then places. if you choose not to participate, you're still participating in the perpetuation well, of the problem. Well, you are in a way because you're, you're, you're turning your face against it. Mm. And so um, regardless of, of what particular perspective you may have on the church, it's weak weaknesses and his failures. And you can concentrate on those. On a great, I spent a great deal of my time on the, on the dark side mm. looking at the failures. You have to also look to the visionaries and right. to the saints and to the iconic figures and to the remarkable women and men who built up and continue to build up a, a, a just and humane society. Mm. Now, those are admirable qualities. Now, you've written extensively about one of those primary figures, uh, Thomas Merton, mm -hmm. uh, of course. Mm -hmm. 
tell us a bit about Thomas Merton, because I think especially on a show that's often the, the, where we talk a lot about things like mental health and resilience and uh, grit and determination and being different, mm-hmm. discovering what it means to even be normal. Uh, I, I, uh, while I, I haven't read a whole lot of Thomas Merton, what I have, I've, I've seen a lot of those themes in his work as well. So uh, chances are our audience, however, has no idea who Thomas Merton necessarily even is. What, what can you tell us about him? Well, um, Merton was um, uh, a remarkable figure. By the time of his death, he had written over 50 books. And since his death in 1968, I would say probably as many books of his have appeared, many of them restricted journals, correspondence, letters, and whatever, and some books that were uh, in process before his death and so Mm -hmm. were published posthumously. He, his range of interest was, was wide and Catholic in the lowercase c. By the time of his death, people like Amaya Chakravarti, one of the leading figures in Hinduism in India, said that very few understood the East as well as Thomas Merton. Right. Which made so, him controver- quite controversial. I think. Well, in some circles. Right. Abraham Joshua Heschel, the great um, Jewish mystical thinker, uh, held Merton in very high esteem, as did people who were involved in the civil rights movement and people who were involved in nuclear peace and disarmament. Mm. He was also a poet, over 10 volumes of poetry during his life. By the time of his death at the age of 53, he had um, uh, a huge international readership in the millions. I think you would, you would be surprised, Mark, to discover how many people actually have heard of Merton. Mm, mm. Now, it's, well, certainly his, his, his quotes and his, his ideas, I think, have permeated society extensively. They have, and also they may know something about it, uh, their Merton, right? right the Merton right. of the seven-story mountain in the early years. Mm-hmm. Some will know the Merton of the Asian Journal. Mm-hmm. Many people are drawn to books like New Seeds of Contemplation and Thoughts and Solitude because mm-hmm. they, they find them not specifically theological, but they're very helpful for them in achieving a level of restfulness, mindfulness, as we would call it now, mm-hmm. an ability to to find some silence in their otherwise hectic lives. It's, and so they turn to Merton for very different reasons than somebody who's reading Zen and the Birds of Appetite or his novel, My Argument with the Gestapo. So since you mentioned it, I brought my copy of Thoughts and Solitude because I wanted to uh, read man. a little piece here to expose... What does it mean to know and experience my own nothingness? It is not enough to turn away in disgust from my illusions and faults and mistakes, to separate myself from them as they were not, and as if I were someone other than myself. This kind of self-annihilation is only a worse illusion. It is a pretended humility, which by saying I am nothing, I mean in effect, I wish I were not what I am. This tension seems to 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 uh, come up a lot in Merton uh, between what I am and what I am not or being oh, in nothing the divided so, worlds of Merton yes right? and, and, and he's you know he's at once a celebrity uh, mm-hmm. in his during his living life yeah, uh, and a, a, a Trappist monk of all types of monks who tend to be much more secluded than most that's right called to contemplation and yet right. and at the same time an activist mm-hmm. um, called to silence and yet like uh, reading writing scores mm-hmm. of books mm-hmm. You're right. Merton's uh, particular genius lies in his attempt to to balance the creative contraries, uh, to find a way to not to eliminate one or the other, but to mm. hold them in a creative tension. 
to no small degree, he owes this greatly to William Blake mm. and uh, to a number of the mystics of both the English tradition and from the uh, Carmelite tradition in mm-hmm. Spain. Mm-hmm. It, this um, this um, uh, way of saying that you know you have to you have the needs for interiority, the needs for the need for deeper exercise of going in. At the same time, you have the call to go out. You have you have the challenge of downward mobility and the challenge of upward mobility. And so you're always faced with not eliminate, eliminating the tension or eliminating one of the contraries, but struggling to do what Blake argues with the marriage of heaven and hell, and that's to hold them mm. in, a, in a vibrant fusion. Now, Merton was... Uh more than I think just divided in his thinking, he seemed to be divided in his own spirituality in, in some respects as well. Uh, his journals, which you mentioned, uh, reflected a relationship, potentially a romantic relationship with somebody. Again, frowned oh, upon. Oh, not potentially. It was real. Oh, well, yes, yeah. and, and he admitted this, and he, and he spoke he quite, he quite um, yeah. surprisingly, I think, about it. So, uh, again, how do you balance that? He's, he's a Trappist monk living in the woods, uh, but also facing the temptation of very worldly... Well, I think we're all a bundle of contradictions, right? We're all Mm -hmm. living paradoxes. And because of Merton's life under the larger lens, Mm -hmm. I think you're right when you talk about him as being a celebrity in his own life during his own time, and he clearly was. So those things are, are, are made are even made more intense, right? Mm-hmm. They're 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 heightened. Mm-hmm. So the natural contradictions, failures, struggles, and betrayals that characterize most of our lives. So we we aspire to particular things. We we uh, we have uh, goals. We're idealistic, yet we fail. Uh, we're flawed. We move along. It's all a cliche, right? But in reality, in existential terms, um, it's the it's the daily struggle mm-hmm. to perfection, or at least the daily struggle to self acceptance and for Merton, because of his transparency, because of his um, sometimes latter, lacerating self-honesty, uh, Merton couldn't couldn't steal his pen. He had to write about everything. So mm. he wrote in very great detail about his relationship with M, this nurse with whom mm. he had fallen in mm. love. Uh, in detail that you you know more prudent minds, um, certainly more censorious minds, would consider inappropriate. But for Merton, in his diaries, restricted journals, whatever, uh, Merton was always in the quest for the true self, mm. getting rid of the false self. And the false self flourishes in the darkness. It flourishes when we don't cast the sometimes um, difficult heat that comes when we're we're the center of perspective. So the light that shone on us sometimes can be very intimidating, daunting. And we don't like that. Uh, we like prefer, like shadows are more comfortable than the intense heat. Merton turned the heat on himself. Merton, mm. Merton became the gateway, to, uh, some would argue, to his own disgrace. Others would argue to a greater appreciation of his fallenness and his aching into holiness. You only move forward when you embrace the truth about yourself. Mm. And that, that act of embracing is never a single undertaking. It is a life undertaking. But it's also a very difficult one because we do try to protect ourselves, our persona, our sense of who we are. We try to self-insulate because, you know, we are what we project for people to believe we are. And yet interiorly, internally, we know that that's never sufficient, right? Mm. And so we spend a great deal of time building up our persona. And I would say, put it in the plural, Merton spent a good deal of his spiritual life breaking down those levels, mm. those masks. Um, that keep us some distance from the true self. That's now, a terrible 
difficult task. By the time he died, uh, and I've talked to you about this offline uh, more than once, I think, uh, Merton was found dead uh, in a bathtub uh, with an electric fan. He was found dead on the floor with a fan on top of him. On a fan on top of him. Okay, so um, I've read previously uh, theories that he killed himself, Uh, but I don't believe that's a theory that you've accepted. Oh, no, I think it's absurd, actually. But uh, we have another theory circulating right now, Mark, you may be interested in. The book has just come out, well, came out last year, called The Martyrdom of Thomas Merton, in which Mm. the two authors, investigative journalists, Thurley and Martin, make the argument that Merton was killed by the CIA. Now, this argument has surfaced before, but never with such intensity. Mm. The two investigative journalists look at all kinds of discrepancies in the police reports by the Thai police and by various other authorities. They look at the other areas or gaps or chasms that seem to exist in the reportage uh, and the coverage of the of the event, different dis- uh, stories that somehow or other seem to find a unified narrative. What they have done is proceed from that to make the case that uh, Merton was the third to go, that mm. uh, Martin Luther King was assassinated first, then Ra- uh, Robert Kennedy, and then Merton at the end of the year. So it's mm. the year of the three assassinations and that this was intentional on behalf of the CIA under the instructions of Lyndon Johnson and with the complicity, he would argue, of some, they would argue, of the Trappist authorities who, who wove together a particular narrative, a coherent story mm. that all the biographers, including me, because I'm one of the biographers, I've right. written two biographies on them, have accepted. Now, here's the problem. They do, the uh, the two journalists, who, by the way, don't have an especially distinguished history as an investigative journalist, and their book is self-published, so put that where, where it deserves uh, consideration, nonetheless completely dismiss the book as a failure mm. because it does seem to me that they, uh, again, they bring out into the light, which can be disturbing, um, discrepancies in the coverage of the event mm. that haven't been addressed, gaps that haven't been filled. Now, it's one thing to move beyond some circumstantial evidence to a grand theory of a conspiracy, and it's not surprising than the age of Breitbart and um, Steve Bannon right. and all the kinds of things that go on that where conspiracy theories are are the flavor of the month, that this would now arise and right. with, with a new kind of ferocity. It did appear earlier in a work several years ago, but the author of, that, of the thesis about CIA complicity, uh, to my understanding, eventually abandoned theory because it's mm. very difficult to substantiate. Well, what would have possibly been the motivation for that? Was Merton that controversial while Merton he was, was very controversial. Uh, sure, there, he was controversial. There were North, but... there were North Vietnamese monks who, who were invited to the monastery. Mm. He was um, in Bangkok and Thailand is not far from Vietnam. Mm-hmm. It was 1968. It was the year of the Tet Offensive. The American government, the Pentagon, the Defense Department are increasingly concerned about the direction of the war. Mm. Many already... Uh, including uh, Ellsberg, uh, Colonel Ellsberg, have already concluded that the that they lost the war. So it's a very difficult time in the United States. Plus, mm. there are riots and protests and everything else. So having a monk, a Roman Catholic monk, and not a minor figure, mm. but a national celebrity uh, meddling in political issues, 
deeply sympathetic to the cause of the North of the North Vietnamese uh, Buddhist monks, though not ideologically aligned. I mean, he was not a Marxist, Merton, but he was not entirely dismissive of Marxism. And the last paper he gave before he died was on Marxism and monasticism. So he was, and in which Marxism is is. is is the um, obviously the deficient route because it, it it deals with false consciousness. So he was contrasting monasticism with Marxism to the detriment of Marxism, but he didn't dismiss entirely the validity of some of the Marxist critique. That would only even further inflame mm. his critics, mm. who felt that Merton was going far far to the left, but also dangerously being manipulated. So you could see that some would think that uh, how do you get rid of this meddlesome priest? Mm. Well, you find a way when he's out of the country and he's in a public setting uh, giving an address, but then in a private setting where you can actually orchestrate uh, the murder without direct attribution. And that's the theory that that they, that they compound. But mm. the, the ev- to, to move from the... Um, the deficiencies in coverage and of the particularities around his death, the confusion, the contradictions. Was he nude or was he found with his underwear on? Why would he have underwear on if he just stepped out of a shower? Why was the fan on the shower in a certain direction? And all these kinds of questions Mm -hmm. that come Mm -hmm. up. Why did the Thai authorities dig up the garden outside his window and replace it with an entirely different garden? Mm -hmm. Why was no autopsy ever done? Mm -hmm. An autopsy would have concluded Without question, he died of of myocardial infarction as a consequence of electrocution. That would have been watertight and clear. Many of these things were left untouched and mm. didn't come through. Didn't they? Didn't follow through on them. As a consequence, it's been a kind of a germinating ground for these theories. Mm-hmm. And now these two writers are making the case for the martyrdom, and therefore, as a consequence, the sainthood of uh, Thomas Merton, uh, making the case, well, he died as a martyr of the faith and um, he was killed for his opposition to Mm. oppression, blah, 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 and uh, he should be raised to the altars. It's an extravagant thesis, has more loopholes in it than one could imagine, is not terribly persuasive, I think, but does raise some dark corners of query which we haven't been able to satisfy. And certainly now, in anything that I write or say, when it comes to his death, I now refer to the death as controversial and um, the subject of contention rather than just simply say, this is how he died, the issue is over, we have nothing else to consider. And in the the many years since he's uh, died, uh, an anniversary just passed within the last few years? Well, in 2015, it was the 100th anniversary of his birth. Of his birth, right. And in 2018, which was last year, mm-hmm. it was the 50th anniversary of his death. Of his death, yeah. yeah. And, and since then, I mean, um, vocations to Trappist monasteries have increased, especially the ones with which he was affiliated. Um, he's opened up probably the Catholic faith anyway, in a way that there's not there's not many popular... Uh, um, Catholics in in that respect, I think, that have been so accessible. Um, but it's invited in, uh, uh, or, or I should say, it's also invited in uh, a strain of people, I think, who are inspired by his thinking, like you mentioned, um, Henry Nouwen. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Can you tell me more about Henry Nouwen? Because I think that, especially when it comes to uh, our care of people who are struggling and suffering, his work has been incredibly instructive for me. I will, but just before that, just one small corrective. I don't sure. think Merton uh, uh, has since his death been responsible in any way for generating vocations to the monastic Oh, that's life. something that the Trappists say. Uh, well, <laughs> there's no statistical evidence that that's okay. the case. In fact, uh, many of the monasteries are in significant decline, sadly. Mm-hmm. It's not something we t- should rejoice about. No. Um, but it, um, they're, they're not able to ma- retain their numbers, even right. even the, the number at the Abbey of Gethsemane where he was. At its peak, it was 300 and 40, 350, right. it's now less than 50, I would right, think. Right. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure that that's an argument that can be made. It, it, may it was been, an argument that was made at one was time made. Yeah, yeah. and could be made because, in fact, he did generate enormous interest in monastic life. And right. many monastic vocations were, uh, resulted out of reading his work, right. The Waters of Silloway, The Silent Life, but very importantly, The Seven Story Mountain. Now, in the case of Henry Nouwen, now, uh, Merton was influential in Nouwen's life for a number of reasons, Mark, although they only met once. Mm. And at that point, Nowen was a non-entity, if you like. He had written, hadn't written anything yet. He was uh, in between Notre Dame University and going back to uh, the Netherlands. And then eventually he would establish his own trajectory mm-hmm. um, uh, as, a, as somebody who felt it was very important to study phenomenological psychology at the University of Nijmegen and to use that knowledge of psychology uh, with spirituality to, to bring them together. And one of the most interesting things, and you, I think you especially because of your own interests, would find this of compelling merit, um, is his work on Anton Boysen. Mm. Anton Boysen was a, a major figure who made a case in the United States that we were foolish not to take the uh, experience that the mentally ill had of God as as a validating and an important experience, but to dismiss it as delusional or as the result of some pathology. And um, he was a, a leading figure in the Northeast Coast uh, in New England, in both university settings and in seminary settings and in mental health institutions. He died in a sanitarium himself. He, was, he suffered from uh, several psychotic episodes. When Boysen died, one of the last people actually to spend some time with, with him was Henry Nouwen. And Boysen had written a very powerful autobiography about his struggles with mental health and God. He was himself a Presbyterian minister. He had a doctorate in forestry. He was a professor at the university. He was a consultant at the Worcester uh, Mental Institution and the Massachusetts General Hospital. He was an extraordinary guy but, and very, very talented, but very riven, very broken figure. He wrote this powerful autobiography called Out of the Depths de Profundus, and um, uh, Nouwen was greatly attracted to him, greatly attracted to the work he was doing. And so um, some scholars will argue that uh, Nouwen's phrase for one of his first and for many people most important book, The Wounded Healer, Mm -hmm. actually comes from uh, an elision of some of the phrases used in his conversation around and with uh, Anton Boysen. Mm. So um, Nouwen's life as a psychologist and as a spiritual writer was deeply involved in responding to people through compassion. He believed profoundly in compassion. And he realized that compassion is not something that you meet out. It's not a commodity that can be handed out. It's not something that one can cultivate uh, recklessly. 
Compassion is very much dependent on the power of the imagination, on empathy. How do you enter into the suffering of the other? You have to be able to enter into their space. You have to be them. Merton, uh, not Merton, but Nouwen's capacity for both friendship and compassion by almost any human yardstick was extraordinary. You can see it in his many books. By the time he died, he had published 39 books. And um, some uh, first volume of his letters came out just a couple of years ago, a very beautiful volume. And you see the range of his compassion in those letters. One of the last letters he wrote was within weeks of his dying. Of course, he didn't know he was going to be dead, but within weeks of his dying, in which he writes to a father who's deeply distressed by the fact that his son is addicted. And he addresses the issue of his addiction. Now and responded to all the people who sought his help, and we have 16,000 letters. So his responding to people, taking the time to see that letter as a form of confession and to enter into their lives non-judgmentally, you know, not setting up, this is what I think, not clinically, not diagnosing from a distance, but listening to their articulated pain and to imagine himself in their place so that he could respond to their suffering it was an extraordinary gift. Mm. So by the time he dies, uh, quite young at the age of 64, 1996, of a heart attack on his way to the Hermitage at St. Petersburg in um, in Russia, where he was going to do a film version of his most famous book called The Return of the Prodigal Son, based on the Rembrandt painting. Now, that has an interesting story in its own right. <laughs> During the uh, campaign for the election of Hillary Clinton many years ago, um, she was asked, I think it was on, on NPR, uh, uh, if she was, um, uh, what was her spirituality? Mm -hmm. um, her background is you know, Methodist. Mm -hmm. But what is her spirituality? And she said, well, her spirituality is really defined in so many ways by Father Henry Nouwen, mm -hmm. and that she carries that book, The Return of the Particle Son, with her all the time. We've discovered again and again, David Brooks in his most recent book that just came out, refers several times to Nouwen in his writing. Uh, what another remarkable example of a Catholic figure who actually transcends the narrowness of any kind of denominational barrier mm -hmm. by, by speaking to the common needs of, of humanity. Mm -hmm. And Nouwen had that remarkable capacity. He sees himself as a disciple of Merton, and he is in the sense that he saw and recognized the importance of balancing your social commitment, your justice commitment, with uh, a call to interiority, mm -hmm. to a call, a call to prayer life. So mm -hmm. contemplation and action, again, that tension. Now, Merton, or, or sorry, uh, Nowen was uh, quite deeply affected by his exposure to the, the two large communities. Yes, um, yes. Uh, who Vanier, and we'll get to Vanier in a second, but can you talk a little bit about Merton's uh, work? What was the, the little the little book that he wrote about uh, the young man? Adam. Adam, yes. Can you talk a little bit about that stage yes, of his Yes, Adam Arnett was a... Um, uh, a member of the uh, community, uh, the core community at um, Larche Daybreak in Richmond Hill here in Toronto. And he was suffered from all kinds of disabilities, far more than the, than the vast majority of those who are members of these communities. And um, was unable to feed himself. He was unable to talk. Um, it was a very, very difficult, restricted life. 
And when Nowen came to Larsh, he was given by the head authority of the Larsh community there, he was given Adam as mm-hmm. the person he would dress and wash and feed and prepare in the morning and before he went off to do his own thing. And Nowen writes very clearly about how difficult he found that. I mean, mm-hmm. he said, I, I live by words. My, I was a Harvard professor and... And he was at Yale and tenured at Yale for many, many years. And here he is, suddenly finds himself cleaning up somebody, helping to feed them, uh, moving them around and whatnot, completely foreign to anything he had ever done. Mm-hmm. In time, he came to love Adam. And he came to love Adam because he realized that Adam spoke to him in all his vulnerability. He allowed um, Henry to recognize his own vulnerability. And he realized that Adam had set no limits or conditions to his love. He just simply loved mm-hmm. in all his brokenness. This was remarkably revealing to, to Merton, revelatory, Merton, mm-hmm. not Merton, but Nowen, revelatory to Nowen. And Nowen, in fact, saw him as Jesus, saw in him the face of Jesus. So uh, one of the things you find out about Nowen over the years is his fierce fidelity to his friends. Mm-hmm. And so when they're in trouble or somebody dies or is very ill, no matter where he is, no matter what he's doing or if he's on sabbatical or he's lecturing, he comes to see them. So he was out of the country. He came back when Adam was dying. He was with Adam right through to his death. And then afterwards, he wrote this book. And uh, the book came out. He wrote the book within six months. And the book came out after Nowen's death because mm. it was six months before Nowen died. So uh, mm. a- Adam's death was in some very very surprising way was an adumbration or presage of uh, Nowen's own death, helping him come to some deeper understanding of death, though the manner of Nowen's death was not what he would have wanted. He died mm. alone and mm. he feared dying alone. Mm. Mm. Now, he, he this idea of being loved unconditionally, and he writes very uh, beautifully about this idea of it bringing to mind our ability to receive love, right, from Absolutely. somebody who can let, and, and then bringing to mind our own, as he calls them, um, emotional handicaps or spiritual handicaps that we all have something like that inside. That's correct. Us, that and they, how we can learn from people. That's right. That the disabled teach us. They are our teachers, right? Mm-hmm. And so Adam became his primary teacher, mm-hmm. and he taught him all about his own woundedness, mm-hmm. and he became a conduit of grace for him. Mm-hmm. And you can see this. How else to explain it? How else do you explain the capacity to have affection for someone who is not in your class, is not in your league, is is unable to have a conversation with you, uh, is highly, in fact, wholly dependent upon mm. you for even moving? How, how is this uh, companionship or a friendship that of equals? Unless you look at it through a spiritual lens, unless you look at it deeper, not in terms of of interdependencies, but you look at it in terms of reciprocity, Mm -hmm. what did Adam give Henry in this? And how did Henry, as you indicated earlier, receive this in gratitude? So it's not just uh, Adam being the beneficiary of Henry's uh, philanthropy Mm -hmm. and charity, Mm -hmm. but indeed being a, a dialogue between two persons, each growing as a consequence of their love. The Larche communities, of course, established by uh, Jean Vanier, a uh, subject of your most recent book, I understand? No, the most recent or book no, no, is the new one that's just come out, but right. it's the 
the second to the most recent. <laughs> <laughs> so talk to me about Jean Vanier then. There's a, there's a, I mean, the reason why I want to talk, why I wanted to have you to talk about these three people in particular, Merton, uh, Nowen, and Vanier, is that when I was in Chicago for grad school, uh, I rode the subway uh, or the the L, um, you know, at least four times a day every day, and I always had those three authors with me. I read them every day on the train, mm. and they were incredibly influential for me in my own spiritual formation, but especially in my own formation as a mental health advocate, as somebody who speak, uh, tries to speak up for others uh, or, or with others uh, through a place of humility. Uh, and I think that Vanier, who fairly recently passed, uh, was a giant in this respect in, in, in uh, Becoming Human and his many, many other uh, texts, but certainly that's probably the one he's known most for. So talk to me more about, uh, about Vanier. Well, the biography that I wrote of him is called Logician of the Heart. Mm. And um, what is important to recognize in that is a couple of things. There are two great pillars, if you like, in the thinking of Jean Vanier. Because you don't remember that Jean Vanier, among many other things, was a thinker. Mm -hmm. And those two pillars are Aristotle and uh, Jesus. Those are the two great pillars of his thinking, if you like. Uh, what Vanier does in his life and in his witness is he tries always to bring us into a recognition of our utter worthiness of being loved into existence by God and of the need to grow through recognition of our shared vulnerabilities so that we're not in competition. Uh, Vanier was very much opposed to the competitive ethic, which drives so much of our capitalist culture, right? And he was very much opposed to the fact that we hierarchalize uh, values. We say this person of, is of lesser value than this person because this one has this IQ, this one has full uh, access to agility in his limbs, this one has the privileges of socioeconomic advantage and all these kinds of things. And then there are, are people who are below these categories. Not in uh, Vanier's mind. There is a mm. radical equity that comes from his understanding of the gospel and the liberating message of Jesus. So that for for Henry, what matters, not Henry, Jean, what matters is one's humanity. Mm. Hence his Massey lectures, and you mentioned it mm. earlier, Mark, Becoming Human, became mm. rather famous, not only in Canada, but abroad, well, after they had been aired by the CBC because they went into into publication. Precisely because people of every religious denomination and none would be drawn to his fundamental humanitarianism. Mm. Uh, he was a Christian humanist. And um, so his capacity to address the issue of our brokenness in a way that there's not a diminishment of the human, mm. but an enhancement of it had universal appeal. And it was because he lived that message. I, I remember going to Trolley which was his home in France, and uh, over some other matter. And uh, during the course of the conversation, I indicated that I had been approached or commissioned to write a biography of him. There have been several biographies of him. He was completely and totally uninterested. He said, well, Michael, if you have to do it. And I said, <laughs> he said, I would prefer, you know, could you write about the L'Arche movement? Right. It's not about me. Nothing like this should be about me. I said, well, uh, unhappily for you, Jean, the, the publishers wanted to be about you. I mean, <laughs> It's because, hard to make a biography yeah, about. Right. Some... They don't want a biography of a movement. They want the biographer right. of you, right? right. He didn't stand in the way, and he certainly seemed in the end pleased with the result, but I mean, he didn't 
do anything to encourage sales because for him, this was a diversion. It, mm. You know, it kept Michael busy for a while. But uh, <laughs> you know, in terms of the work that he was doing, yeah. um, it was an act. It, it was accidental. What mattered, what was essential, was the lives lived out by the people who constitute the core and their assistants, the families of, of large homes. Mm. From them, they can be a model you can extend to the larger family of humanity. He had a cosmic vision in the end, and he was a man who, who I think was quite sophisticated in his understanding of human um, machinations and intention and depravity and whatnot. He, he was not uh, Pollyannish. He, he knew what we were capable of, but he also knew that there was a spark in divinity in us, mm. and that, that spark needed to find uh, airing time, if you like. And uh, that's done because we come together to share in our, our vulnerabilities, to grow um, as human beings, and that call to growth as human beings, that a, a clarion call in some respects, mm -hmm. was grounded in the way he ministered in his own life. Mm. You know, we live in a time when people are deeply cynical, and nothing, of course, compromises a message more than hypocrisy. So if somebody makes a strong argument for a particular position, and then we discover afterwards that that's the, their lives are that's the false self, that they live double lives, that they betrayed their fundamental commitment, but still nonetheless continue to advocate from a, that position of public uh, public uh, persona we're we're so sorely disappointed we lose faith mm. in them we feel betrayed and everything else there's not an uh, there's not even a hint of this with with now and with Juvenia. Uh, there wasn't with now and either or, or Merton but they their lives were congruent their lives were of a piece mm. their lives were marked by integrity now they they had their flaws their weaknesses their imperfections oh yes and some more dramatic than others Merton was quite dramatic <laughs> and now now and in his own way as well Vanya seems more serene mm. he seems more consistent we have to have to consider the remarkable family that he came from uh, his George mother Vanier, Pauline course, yeah. and his father George mm -hmm. right uh, uh, husband and wife of of great personal intellectual and spiritual integrity uh, his brother Father Benedict from Oka. Uh, huge influence in the lives of many people. His sister, Therese, who was a hematologist and was one of the co-founders with Cecily Saunders of the hospice movement in England. Mm. And she was uh, the founder of a large home in London. So the family has a long history of what public service. I mean, mm. the father was the governor general of public service to the community, not narrow service. Okay, I'm going to serve the Catholic community. I'm not really interested in anybody else. That's not the case. You know, we, 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 if you're called to witness to the liberating power of the gospel and you're within the Roman Catholic communion, you, your ministry is not limited to that communion. Mm. Your ministry has to be expansive, broader, comprehensive. Vanya is the perfect embodiment of that. You're a well-respected scholar, I would argue, public intellectual. Do you talk about these people as a matter, as subjects of academia, or have you learned from these three figures and so many others that you've written about and studied over the years as well? Have they changed you? That's a good question, Mark, and I would hope that they have. Um, I've never been entirely persuaded 
that the academy is best served by people who maintain an absolute detachment from the implications of the writers and witness of the figures that they study. In other words, the argument that academicians appoint, approach their subject, their writer, their thinker with a kind of uh, calculated, calculating uh, and cruel clinical detachment is uh, specious and counterproductive. I think that when we study these figures, their, the pastoral implications of their lives and their witness should also have some influence on us. Um, it doesn't mean that we become apologists for them. It doesn't mean we, 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 that we become hagiographers or um, advocates for a particular position. We should always, as scholars, maintain a certain objectivity that we have to protect. But it does mean that when we insulate ourselves from any kind of subjective interaction with the with the figures we study, it's a, a perfect illustration, it seems to me, of poverty of imagination. Mm. Mm. What need do these do these lines of thinking? I mean, all these writers and everybody that you've written about have, a, I think, a fairly clear through line. They're all within the same universe. Is that simply because that's that's your area of academic expertise, or is something drawing you to the this kind of thought? Well, I'm certainly drawn to their Catholicism. How they live out their Catholic faith um, interests me enormously. And but there's lots, there's lots of there's lots of people in the Catholic Church that you could be attracted to. Why the people who seem to have such a sensitivity toward the vulnerability of others? Uh, well, partly because I think they they approximate more closely uh, the the witness of Jesus of Nazareth, which seems to me essential. Mm. Um, I I think that I'm not uninterested in. Uh, um, complicated and attractive, sometimes quite beautiful theological architecture built around an argument. Cardinal Ratzinger was superb at that. But I'm much more attracted to um, Jorge Bergoglio, uh, Pope Francis, who gets his hands into the dirt and enjoys the smell of the sheep and calls mm. us to be engaged I think intellectuals should be called to engagement, and it is alarming to me, quite frankly. Uh, perhaps another uh, Trésor de l'Eclair, where, where the intellectuals and the academics, uh, particularly in North America, at a time of the dissolution and the coarsening of political life and political discourse, respectively, mm -hmm. um, are not more vocal in their denunciation of uh, the uh, political progenitor, gener, gener, progenitors of, of this kind of intellectual and spiritual malaise. We, we have uh, an important job to do, and it does seem to me that sometimes we've left it to the journalists to do. Mm. I, I, this is not quite the subject we've been talking about, but I've been thinking a lot about it. In the United States, where I work and have for the last uh, 10 years, we're in a time of some turbulence. And the, the ones who advocate most strenuously and work most vigorously to keep truth alive, language purified, uh, facts accurate, are in fact journalists. Mm. They're mm -hmm. the ones who are the beacon. I was just thinking of uh, this the other day too. Uh, as I was reading, not the other day, but the Globe and Mail on the way in on the train about the Toronto School Board uh, making a case for uh, Greta Thunberg this mm -hmm. week for, or not, not the following Friday, and wondering where the Catholic School Board is on this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When the Catholic school boards, uh, presumably, one would hope, have been paying close attention to Pope Francis and his environmental and ecological 
ethical mm-hmm. teaching in Dato C and some of his other work. But the the one last thing I want to talk about, though, was that, you know, you've been a university executive for a very long time as well. You're president of St. Thomas University. Prior to that, St. Jerome's, yes? Yeah, St. Jerome's University in the University of Waterloo. In the so University federated of Federated University. Right. Yeah. Um, so in that sense, I mean, I asked you already if, if religion was uh, still relevant. Uh, liberal arts, you know, I never would have... Um, been exposed to these thinkers who so deeply influenced my own work and advocacy and activism uh, and spirituality had it not been for the liberal arts and specifically actually for you. <laughs> so I, I, I credit you with that. But are the you hear all the time that the liberal arts are are not relevant, that they're that they're just thinking about thinking, reading stuff. Why don't you go do engineering or computer science or, you know, take a trade or not? And those are all valuable professions as well. But what role do the liberal arts still have to play in the in the modern economy, and in in um, why should still pe- people still study uh, these figures at all? Oh, I think there are a whole array of reasons, not all of which are convincing to the uh, critics of liberal arts who would make the case that they're not utilitarian enough, that they don't fit fit into the economic engine that um, investment in STEM is more important than liberal arts because you can assess the final product. Mm. Um, And uh, there's some truth in some of these arguments only. The larger argument that is lost in this is that the liberal arts keep us human, Mm. that the liberal arts provide us with an access not to the decorative or the ancillary, but the essential and existential that the major thinkers, including economists and great minds that shape our culture, are not insignificantly often the result of uh, liberal arts education or sustained exposure to the liberal arts as they were growing up in their families. The liberal arts isn't um, an add-on. It's the fundamental foundation upon which a civilization is grounded. It's conversation with the great thinkers. It's openness to the power of imagination. It's the deepening of the human enterprise. The fact that we would find ourselves in a situation where we would have to justify that is a terrible indictment of the values that we have in our culture. Dr. Michael Higgins, thank you so much for coming on the show with me. It's my pleasure, Mark. There we go. What did you think of that? There's my conversation with Dr. Michael Higgins. He's the Vice President for Mission and Catholic Identity at Sacred Heart University in Fairfield, Connecticut. He's also a prolific Canadian academic writer uh, on issues of the the Catholic Church and uh, a variety of of aspects of that. So it was a real pleasure to me uh, to have him in here because in addition to all those great accomplishments and and all those many, many books that he's written so far, I also consider him to be a good friend. Uh, So it was a, a wonderful conversation, and I'm grateful to him, to Michael Higgins, for coming in and having it with me. Uh, If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe uh, on Apple Podcasts, leave us a star rating, leave us some comments down on the bottom. Uh, Wherever you listen to the show, whether it's Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, uh, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you find us, you can can subscribe it and like it and share it and share it wherever. Tag me on social media, too. It's at Mark Hennick, at M-A-R-K-H-E-N-I-C-K. You can also learn more about me and the work that I do at Mark Hennick. I'd like to thank everybody here at E1, uh, Adrian, Harrison, Jonathan, Kimberly, Allison, everybody else. I think I got them all that time. The team is growing all the time. Uh, And Dave, of course, for assembling uh, these episodes. I'm Mark Hennick. This has been So Called Normal. Thanks for listening.